This podcast is brought to you by Enrollment Resources, Innovations in Enrollment Management. Learn more at enrollmentresources.com. Um, hi, everybody, and uh, welcome to Enrollment Resources Podcast. Uh, today, we're going to um, move away from tactical conversations to more esoteric strategic conversation on how to reverse engineer uh, your enrollment management process so that your school works uh, better on several levels. It's, uh, I think it's going to be an interesting talk. Um, today we have um, Susan Schultz, who is a uh, uh, guru is a word uh, that can be used. Uh, I think Susan is a legitimate guru as it, in terms of enrollment management. She's been in this space for over 20 years and uh, has a PhD in, in this area of learning and has uh, done volumes of exceptional work. Uh, we also have on this call uh, Tom King, and Tom is a VP uh, with Enrollment Resources, and he oversees uh, initiatives pertaining to our um, virtual advisor uh, pathways, our software division. Tom was uh, formerly um, a chief operating officer for a large vocational school um, in the Northeast, and he increased uh, enrollment revenue by 650% in his tenure at that school. And we also have with us a uh, co-founder of Enrollment Resources, Shane Sparks. And Shane is, uh, and myself, we started Enrollment Resources in 2003, and we focus on um, process improvement as it relates to enrollment management. The marketing jargon term is uh, conversion rate optimization, or CRO. So we're always looking, Shane, for ways to um, make little improvements and allow people to do more with what they've got, hey? Yeah, that's right. That's where the leverage is. That's where the leverage is. And today, we're going to talk about something called reverse engineering. So what we often do at Enrollment Resources is we pull best practices from other industries and then import them into the higher education space um, and we split tests. We, we test these best practices and see if they can be adopted, uh, creating innovation. And so for today, we are um, receiving our inspiration from uh, the bridge builders of the world, um, the people who go and build those spans over top bridges and what have you. And bridge builders, the engineers, they use what they call reverse engineering. So they, they start with the end in mind, and then they methodically go backwards on their project plans and, and establish what best practices are required in order to reach that end result. And so what we've done is we're messing around with um, reverse engineering as it pertains to enrollment management. Um, so that is the, the background. Um, in terms of um, building uh, up a, a, a best practice enrollment management system, if you will. Now, uh, let's go and, um, and just dive in here. Um, so I guess the first question I have for the panel here is, if a school uh, can attract uh, you know, a high percentage of ideal students, everything works better, right? The, the regulators get off your back, um, the, the margins are, are healthier, the, everything just works better better. And um, so I guess my question is, the, these performance ratios come, uh, come to mind, all these various performance ratios. Shane, uh, what are your thoughts on this? 
Well, okay. Here's what I think. The, for years we've been doing these kind of webinars, and a lot of them are tactical on it. So it will be, a, if you do this, then you can expect this kind of return on that effort. And that comes out of our own testing on the marketing end and partnerships with other organizations that have done, you know, original research. But what we found is that at some point you hit um, uh, either plateau or the result is not totally consistent across all schools. So if every school did one, did the same thing, the, the results weren't always the same. And so what I personally attribute that to is this kind of perfect customer notion or the, the perfect student notion, meaning the, the type of person you're attracting through your, your marketing, your outreach, and through your, your admissions efforts is going to influence the result and therefore influence how you perform on say, a traditional um, enrollment management funnel. That's, so, that's, a, that's a very interesting point. Um, Susan, um, that, Shane's made an interesting point there. So do you have anything to add to that comment? Uh, actually, not at the moment. Not at the moment. <laughs> All right, uh, Tom. How about yourself? No, I, ab absolutely. I, I think you know you, you always should be beginning with the end in mind. But uh, when you to, to optimize your efficiency, it's it's really all about trying to attract that ideal student as opposed to using that scattershot approach. And hey, just more leads is great. Well, no, quality leads um, is great, but then honing that funnel to getting the ideal student is really the, uh, you know, the end goal to, to optimize what you do. Well, okay, let's drill, down, let's drill down on this now. Let's go and see if we can go down a couple rabbit holes and explore some of this. So I think if we're working backwards, we're really starting with um, employers. Um, you know, really career education is really all about if the employers are in love with the graduates. Uh, that is a notion I'd like to present. And um, So, Susan, I know you've done a lot of work in the area of alumni and employer-graduate relationship. Um, why don't you jump on and, and just speak to this a little bit, a little bit more? Absolutely. Actually, I sit on you know, some uh, CQ um, committees. I'm working with people, and we're, we're focused exactly on this. What competencies do the employers want? And, and every school should be talking to their employers, the people who are hiring their students or who should be hiring their students, and find out exactly what is it you want, what skills, soft skills, you know, the technical skills, uh, you know, what's wanted, and then structure the program to meet those needs, not only the current needs, but at the changing needs. Uh, most companies, um, if they're smart, are constantly reinventing themselves. So the question is, what's the ideal employee, employee right now, six months, a year, and two years from now, and um, make sure your programs meet those needs. Well, that's a very interesting comment because, you know, Shane, um, speaking to, if you could speak to Susan's point, you know, there, there are a number of schools that just get greedy, and they hang in on these marginally effective programs. I guess we call them buggy whip or 
blacksmith programs without really, as Susan speaks to, is um, uh, just moving with the times. Um, I'd like you to just to, to build on what Susan's just said. That's a very interesting insight she's given. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's, yes, it's program, and, and um, p- program successfully meeting the needs of employers is a huge part of this. Now, I think in defense of the sector, um, it is d- difficult to make program changes, and it's time-consuming to launch new programs, which has stifled innovation, and um, hopefully will be resolved with the new administration. But um, I think the other piece of this, too, though, is p- person. You know, you can you can give the wrong person the right skills, and they're they're still not the successful employee for that employer. You know, just jumping in on your point there, I, I've done some research where uh, employers they go crazy. Uh, like as employers on this call, we've all experienced you go crazy where you have a right person, and then ninety days in, they bolt, they disappear. They're, they have kind of a fraudulent resume, what have you. And, um, and so I think that's what you're speaking to, hey? Well, yeah, it's that. It's, it's the kind of personality. The, you know, I think different jobs have different... Well, here, I'll give you an example. So um, uh, a bunch of manufacturers... This is kind of a kooky example. Manufacturers that set up highly structured manufacturing processes in farming communities tend to struggle because the farmers tend to be a DIY kind of people, right? They're like, hey, get in there, roll up their sleeves, get stuff done, fix it themselves. If you have highly structured manufacturing that if a machine breaks, you know, a technician has to come in because it would be dangerous for a, a, a worker on the line to try to fix it, you get a cultural problem. Because the, 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 the kind of dangerous manufacturing needs people that are ri- more rigid and willing to follow, uh, you know, hard protocols. The farmers have a more of let's get it done kind of an ethos. So those Got things it. don't line up. So really, like, so Susan, I think that what, that's really more to what you're talking about, like soft skills, hey? Is, um... Well, no, I'm actually talking about community outreach, that there need, in my opinion, from what I've seen, there needs to be one person on the school staff who does nothing but talk to employers and would-be employers to, to keep finding out what is an ideal employee and how are we going to change our programs to do that. Um, and then employers are great resources. The employers can sit on advisory boards the employers can come to the school and talk about the jobs. The employers can hire the grads, can talk about job openings, and talk about um, um, job, you know, openings and, and um, you know, yeah. current, current and future. So it's, it, in my opinion, it's all about taking that community outreach. And in fact, to make the point, I often say your community outreach person should not have an office, but you don't want them sitting in your school. You want them out there in the community, um, you know, talking up the programs. And in that way, you actually don't have to work real hard on qualified students because those employers are going to help 
give you qualified students. And so, yeah, so that's, very, that's fascinating because what I hear you saying then is when, uh, you know, you have a prospective student, which is the, the customer for a school, but the moment they become a student, they then turn into the school's product. Yeah. That's, that's kind of unique to this industry. Well, but, you know, that's the way we should be thinking, right? We have to, you know, this is all about customer service. Mm-hmm. So I guess, Tom, Tom, my question to you is, in, in career education, who's the customer? The student or the employer? Who's the, uh, the yes. real customer? Yes. Um, yeah, is the short answer. Uh, they're, they're both your customer. Uh yeah, the the students are are indeed your your product, and the employer is is primarily your 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 customer. It's kind of sad to look at it as, as the students as being more of a product than than the customer. And they are the customer as well, but uh, they will only be successful if they are molded and trained to to meet the demands that the employers uh, are are and that. The out, exactly what the employers are looking for. So you've got to, you know, Susan's right, you've got to take uh, into that account. And, and you do have advisory boards, and you do have those employers on your advisory boards, and uh, you should be taking what they are looking for into account. Advisory boards only meet so often, uh, and they provide some insight and direction. It's really up to the school whether they take that uh, insight and direction uh, and, and put it to good use. And, and many times... When a school creates a new program, they don't really, you know, consult with the industry as much as as they should, even though, you know, technically they, they need to. But they, hey, this is what we want to we want to train them to do this because it's a great field, and I've got all this curriculum, and there's all these companies out there that put books together, and we'll get these books and we'll do it. Well, it didn't work from the back forward. You, d- you didn't find out exactly what they need um, first before you build your curriculum. And once you've got it, it is in many schools very difficult to, to change. Okay. Okay, good. So now, okay, so we, we, we've established now that the, um, the curriculum and the student user experience needs to be um, more tightly knit with uh, the employer community and that school owners need to resource that to a greater degree. Now, let's leapfrog over to the very front of the funnel and let's talk about um, lead generation. And so what happens, folks, on the call, of course, is that um, many ad agencies, what have you, they write the copy in such a way as to just get leads no matter what. And yet what happens is a lot of the the claims and the promises um, made um, do not line up with that downstream perfect student for the employer. And so what happens is a lot of the leads are just garbage. So Shane, you know, we see a lot of, of lying and bloat and puffery in the advertising side, and we're constantly fixing, um, stripping the BS out of these landing pages from done elsewhere. Can you talk to the folks on the call about lying as far as lead gen? Yeah, so I, I, I would characterize it as overt promotion. No, 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 buddy, buddy. It's lying, really. I mean... Well, 
Uh, well, maybe it is. Overt promotion, fair enough. Overt, okay, so regardless of the word you use, it, it tends not to be a very effective tactic anyway. So what we know is that when um, you, you present information in a factual manner backed up by statistics and um, try to and avoid the kind of overt overselling of something, <clears throat> we tend to get better response on, on ads and landing pages anyway. So there's not really a benefit to um, overt promotion. And maybe an, an example of overt promotion would be, uh, you know, hey, we've got the, I don't know, best school in Cleveland. We're awesome. You know, anything that's subjective and not provable by, some, by a statistic or a fact would be overt promotion. And then conversely, there, uh, uh, the um, polar opposite of overt promotion is to withhold information that might cause somebody to bail because, uh, you know, like, hey, school is hard. School is rigorous. Um, you know, if you're a cosmetologist, you have to stand on your feet for eight hours. Or, yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. So well, speak and, to, and, the, you know, that to that extends, for a sec, too. Sure, and that extends even past the advertising like often um, when, when in admissions, when somebody's on the phone and you're trying to persuade them to come in for a tour, a whole ton of promotion happens. Hey, it's great. You're going to love our school. It's awesome. And which it does the opposite of what it's intended to do because it makes somebody less trustful of you. Because if we, you know, we all have pretty good um, radar for being promoted to. And so when you're honest, say, well, here's, here's the benefit of coming in. Here's what we're going to do when you come in. Here, we're going to do pros and cons on what the career, and we're going to see if you're a match, blah, blah, blah. That's more credible for prospect. And the same holds true for advertising. So then, just segueing to the admissions piece, so you have the owner of a school who um, wants to, to qualify hard, and to have that perfect student and have that great relationship with the graduate and the, the, um, uh, and the employer. And then you also have that owner. Maybe it's two, two people inside one person. and They want asses in classes because they need to make, the, make a return on their P&L. Maybe they have investors that are grinding them for better return. And so they start putting the heat on um, on the admissions reps to to soften uh, soften the qualification process on the way in. Maybe they start putting heat on the marketing company to crank up leads, which is code word for start BSing a little bit uh, in the nature of your copy so as to create greater lead flow. Um, so, Susan, um, I, I'd just like to segue to you. Those are two, those are philosophical drivers coming from ownership. Um, they can, and, and I can kind of see like, hmm, if you're qualifying hard at the admissions level and you're qualifying fully by way of copywriting, your potentially your your revenue could go down. You care to speak to that? Well, you know, it's always a challenge. Um, I sort of deal with uh, the, you know, the kind of medium to small size schools. And the trend I'm seeing now is relying on referrals for um, enrollment. And it does a couple of things. It does really two things. One is it increases qualified leads. Because if someone refers, they're, they're talking about 
their experience and, and the kind of job they have. Um, so the the person you know who's being referred knows about your school before they even enter. Um, the other is uh, that I this is the role I see of alumni, happy graduates, where you stay in touch with them because you see the alumni as a customer also are incredible sources of referral leads. And it's almost a no-brainer. It's like the, all, the, all the admission staff has to do is give them the form to fill out because they already know a lot about the school. So I vote for focusing on referrals. Got it. So you're saying um, a way to take the edge off in terms of performance is to go with high converting referrals um, and uh, it just takes the, it's like an epidural for the enrollment management department. Tom, um, how about you? What are your thoughts on this uh, in terms of, you know, the, the cultural drive to have admissions behave a certain way? Uh, been there and lived that. So uh, it, it, it's a con for, for any DOA uh, at a school, you're, you're being pulled in, in two directions at all times. You know, the ownership is looking at the revenue driver uh, primarily and your instructional employers um, is not as much ownership, but it is looking for that more quality student uh, that will complete the program and be employable. So it's a, it, is a, it is a tight line to walk. Uh, some, you know, Susan hit on it. You know, referrals is, is one way of addressing some of that, but you have to decide as a school really what your, uh, what your direction is going to be. If you've got uh, a, a good flow of quality leads, whether it's through referrals or any other type of lead generating process uh, or reputation, uh, you, can, you have that luxury. If your enrollment starts to flag a little bit, uh, you're under an awful lot of pressure to start to loosen uh, the tightness that you have on and, and being as, as hard and controlling on those uh, those coming students. Uh, so it is, it is a tight rope to, to walk. Uh, I have found, too, though, that if you promote, the harder you seem to make something, the more people have a tendency to want it. Uh, and that seems to, to also um, work in your favor at, at times. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I was just going to say that have the leads, you know, you definitely want to have, um, you know, a source of, of ongoing leads, and I know that you all do a really great job of it. But then have the lead self-qualify. In order to talk to them, tell them they have to whatever, uh, fill out a questionnaire, possibly write a few-line essay or something that would distinguish them so you're not talking to everybody, and you have a shot at enrolling qualified, interested people. Oh, that's a wonderful segue. Um, the uh, I have a quick story, and then I have some brand new research that Shane has come up with that we're going to share. Um, the quick story is this: there's this. Um, I won't name it, but there's this cosmetology school, and the admissions reps have a checklist of eight indicators, indicators that tend to lead to whether they would be a good graduate or not. They've created a like a derivative analysis. And so there are things like, do they have a monogrammed T-shirt, like a graphic T-shirt uh, from a concert they've been to? Uh, eh, bad. Are they chewing gum? Eh, bad. Are they glancing at their smartphone? Bad. And so on. And uh, so there are these eight things. And then the people 
will come in for the interview. And after five minutes, they'll stop and they'll say, you know, our graduates are top producing hairstylists in the industry and they are our product and they are what represents our school. And what we've learned is that they have eight things in common when they're students here. Here are the eight things and you meet five of the eight and unfortunately you fall short on these three. So why don't you go think about this and then if you want to start again, come back in a week or two, okay? And then they boot them out. Boot them out of the meeting. And, um, and amazingly, like 80%, 90% of these people come back and everything on the list is nailed. And um, they have an amazingly successful school. Um, there's a film school I'm aware of where they have a, a prep person and then they have the admissions advisor and the prep person says okay we have to have this checklist nailed down uh, or else uh, you can't um, proceed and so they they work with them to get it prepared if they come to the admissions advisor and they they go the first thing that they do is go through the checklist and if they're short they yell at them and kick them out of the office and send them back to that preparation person so that is uh, like kind of a reverse psychology approach. They just want perfect students in. Now, back to your point, Susan, about filling out a, a questionnaire. We have a, an enrollment resources, uh, something called Virtual Advisor. And Virtual Advisor is a self-qualification tool. Um, and what we've done, what happens is people go through the self-qualification process and then at the very end of it, um, they're asked if they are excited enough, having gone through their self-qualification process, if they would like to meet an advisor and when. And about 45%, I believe, uh, of the people that start this process end up being excited enough that they want to meet with a, an advisor. So they're qualifying themselves in or they're qualifying themselves out. So, Shane, um, what we did here is we, we separated all the people, the highly act, actualized people that wanted to meet with, a, uh, um, uh, with an admissions rep versus those who kind of bailed out. And we, we landed on a few interesting findings, eh? We did, yeah, and it's uh, 44% is the, oh, okay. is the book tour rate. You're super close. So, and what we also know is that the people that book a tour, uh, so go through it, get a score, book a tour, are about twice as likely to enroll. So they're much, more, much higher quality um, prospects and much more likely to end up enrolling. So, so that's juicy, Shane. That's very juicy. Yeah, it's super juicy. So what we, it's very interesting, the research. So what we found was that the biggest difference between those that made a tour request and those that didn't was happiness and confidence. And so, but what that means is the, the prospects that w booked a tour were, more, were slightly more likely to have done a bit more research on program choice. So they were um, marginally more active in seeking, but it wasn't a huge indicator but they were more likely to be unemployed or unhappy in their current work situation. That was a big indicator. So one of the questions we ask in, the, in, in our uh, qualification survey is, um, 
uh, a year from now, how would you feel if nothing changed? So where are you now, and a year from now, nothing changed? They're far, far more likely to have answered frustrated to that question versus I, I'm okay or it'll be fine. Uh, interestingly, do you want me to go through all of it, or do you want to? Uh, here, I'll, I'll jump in for a couple. Yeah, um, please. So the, the, the other thing that's very interesting is the motivation for going to school, hey, Shane. And so, um, you know, I, I would have assume, assumed money, but career fulfillment was re- number one, and then wanting to make a difference um, was number two, then money, and then having your family feeling proud of you. So that's a gold mine for admissions reps and copywriters who want to connect with people who are driving to change their lives, eh? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I have uh, a sorry, go ahead, Susan. Yeah. Um, it's the family piece. Um, what, what, in my studies, and actually the, a dissertation I did like in 1999 about, you know, why, why, why students stay in school or why they enroll, what I discovered is that family actually can be the worst um, piece of keeping a student in school or encouraging. As weird as it sounds, think about crabs in a pot. When you're boiling live crabs, gruesome as it is, the crabs try to pull the ones trying to get out of the pot. They try to pull them down. And the reality is that students who are going to school um, cause a lot of jealousy on the part of the family because that student is rising out of the pot and is going to have a better opportunity. And believe it or not, the family often pulls them back. You know, that's a great analogy, but it really is sick, eh? I mean, just visualizing that, those crabs just have no respect for one another as a family. I mean... Exactly. But on a more positive note, I mean, that's something you consider. (laughs) Family isn't always good, but here's something positive. What I also discovered was that the, the test drive concept. Now, I was studying massage schools, and um, what the massage school decided to do was to have um, prospective students come in, maybe for a massage, sit in a class, sit in, you know, something, to, to test drive, to see what the experience was like. And I spoke to some of the potential students, and I can't tell you the number who said to me, I didn't know we have to get undressed and touch people. They were applying for a massage therapy program and they had no idea it was about touching bodies and being touched and I think that I mean that shocking information made me think why not have every perspective test drive the school absolutely that is a best that's a great best practice again uh, another example of um, just calling out people who will end up just causing all kinds of misery if they happen to make it in and, and start school. Another one that we landed on through our research was um, that really highly analytical people um, tend to stall themselves out, and uh, whereas people who are, mm, I'd say, less structured, people like promotery, kind of uh, empathetic promotery people, supportive people, tend to... Um, respond to structure that's laid at their feet that they could just 
follow. Think of like a more docile, less self-analytical type of personality. They just can follow a process. They're willing, a little more willing to be led. And so we found that in our research as well. So if you take some of these attributes and you start to work them gently into your qualification and communication process, and then you take Susan's um, best practice around insisting that all the prospective students, they take a test drive of, like, why would you buy a car without test driving it kind of thing. Um, Those are things that you can really go and ratchet up in terms of the quality of the student that enters school. But again, Tom, it gets back to um, you you ratchet up and you get that high degree of qualification, but to what end? Is your revenue going to drop, and will it put your school at risk? Now, one thing, Tom, before you answer is I would argue that if it does, it means that you have a mediocre product offering. You have kind of a crappy offering. Um, and, you know, as Shane and I say, you can't polish a turd. You can't put lipstick on a pig. I don't know. So it really gets back to everything has to work. Okay, Tom, you have the last word before we take questions. Yeah, and and, and not only some of the things that, that we've seen through the virtual advisor um, feedback, but also, again, beginning with the end in mind, doing a a perfect grad survey and looking at exactly what what does your perfect grad in each program look like uh, we spend a lot of money on the front end trying to get students in. We spend very little marketing and other money studying the students that are leaving. Uh, and I would propose to most schools to, to really do a, a perfect grad checklist or a perfect grad survey and really form a good demographic uh, of, and psychographic uh, of what those students that are graduating and that are being successful in the field that your employers love what does that grad look like? And then molding your advertising and your marketing a little bit more towards that direction of what can we do to bring that type of a person in. You can be a very successful school uh, if you had half the students but twice the graduation rate. So uh, it, it will wash out in the end if you can graduate you know, 80 90% as opposed to 60 70%. Uh, so you can, you can get less leads and have less students up front as long as you can graduate them. And if you're looking for the right student, uh, your revenue will, will be unchanged if you improve your graduation rates. On that note, that's... Hey, Craig? Yes, sir. I have one more little piece of research to share. Can mm-hmm. we have time? Yes, we do. Okay. The thing, and, and just to get in the spirit, because we're trying to build this profile, right? Yeah. So... The, the other characteristic of people that were most likely to book a tour and therefore more likely to enroll was that they tended to rate themselves higher. So a number of the, the, the assessment quizzes we use, the career readiness quizzes, have questions like, I'm a good listener, rate yourself, I'm good at listening, I'm good at helping others, I'm organized, I enjoy working with my hands, sort of basic questions around their kind of match for the program or the career. Mm-hmm. And the ones that were more likely to book a tour um, rated themselves higher in those questions. So you, the profile would be a person 
you know, we put packaged together is that a person that's got generally a favorable self-image and is at a point of frustration in their career. Well, it makes sense because if you have a high self-image, you're, 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 you could, you no doubt are going to be pondering and say, I deserve better than this because I'm a good person. Yes. Yeah. And okay. if there's current frustration, there's more motivation to do something about it. Interesting. Now, of course, well, folks, in, this, in this, hindsight, it makes yep. sense, but you know, how much of our marketing and emissions effort is designed to route out these kind of people, as, to, as Tom said, you know, if you improve the, the completion graduation rates, you know, the, the money washes out. And, and you save a lot of advertising dollars in the process. You know? Yeah, oh, absolutely. So, yeah. Well, okay, so folks, um, we want to respect your time budget uh, that you've given for this podcast. And so we have two pieces of business. So we're going to be giving away um, three months of free service for our virtual advisor um, offering, and um, the first three people that text message in will receive this for free, and um, it will it should add um, tens of thousands of dollars a month to your revenue if you have a smaller school system. So uh, here's how you you can go first three people. Uh, this is the the number that you you can uh, text message. It's two five zero three nine one nine four nine four. That's two five zero three nine one nine four nine four. And uh, first three will we've got three units that we're going to go and give away for this call, and we'll just um, work you into our our pilot project system and. You, you can enjoy the benefits of it. And uh, thank you very much, everybody. And uh, uh, go out there and reverse engineer. All the best. That was great. Thanks. Thank you, This podcast is brought to you by Enrollment Resources, Innovations in Enrollment Management. Learn more at enrollmentresources.com.